We're going to get back into Revelation chapter 6 this morning. We had been studying through this book and we had gotten up to verse up through verse 2 of chapter 6, the opening of the first seal. These seals are what enclose this scroll that is in the hand of the Lamb. We see this presented to Him in Revelation 5. I talked about how this scroll represents the title deed of the earth. It's sealed with seven seals. And as the Lamb begins to open the seals, He begins to open the title deed of the earth so that when He returns, it can be publicly read and He can take formal possession of what is rightfully His because He is kinsman redeemer. So we open the first seal in the first two verses of chapter 6, that was the white horse and its rider, though unnamed, we identified as Antichrist, who came with a bow and no arrows and came bringing peace. And then we stopped and we went to the book of Daniel because I felt like it was important to look at the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. This is a prophecy that God gave the prophet to outline the future history of God's dealings with Israel to accomplish his purposes for them. This would span a period of 70 weeks of years. 490 years. The first 69 weeks are past. They started with the commandment of Artaxerxes to allow Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem in 454 B.C. And they expired with Messiah the Prince on the 10th of Nisan A.D. 30 when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. That prophecy said that after 69 weeks, 483 years, two things would happen. Messiah would be cut off. That took place at 3 p.m., 14 Nisan, A.D. 30 at Calvary. And then the people of the prince that shall come. The prince that shall come is the white horse rider of the first seal. The people of the prince that will come will come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. We know the Romans accomplished that in A.D. 70. And we know that Antichrist will arise out of that fourth Gentile world kingdom which I, uh, Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy identifies with those who destroy the city of Jerusalem after Jesus, the Romans, a revived Roman Empire. And then that prophecy tells us that there's a war against the Jewish people that starts with the sack of the city. It really started all the way back with Nebuchadnezzar, the times of the Gentiles. But until the end of that war, the Jewish people would be persecuted. And we see that throughout the church age. So at Messiah the Prince, the prophetic clock ground to a halt. God began to work a unique program, the building up of His church, Jew and Gentile together. And that time is going to come to an end where the church is raptured. And that prophetic clock for Israel starts again. There's one week remaining on that prophetic clock. One seven-year period. And the Bible says it starts when He, or the Prince that shall come, signs a covenant or a treaty with Israel. And in the midst of that treaty, He will break His covenant. And that is the period of tribulation. Daniel's 70th week. And that's where we are in Revelation chapter 6. The first seal is the coming of Antichrist, the rise of Antichrist through peace and diplomacy. And this peace and diplomacy obviously involves the signing of this treaty. We know Antichrist will be a world leader. I talked extensively about him. Aside from Jesus Christ the Messiah, there's no other single person in all of Scripture that is foretold with as much detail as the person of Antichrist. You can find this in Isaiah, in Daniel. You can find it in um, the book of Revelation. Jesus talks about it in John. 
Paul talks about it in Thessalonians. So, we've seen the opening of the first seal, which is the coming of Antichrist. And the peace and diplomacy which he brings is a judgment from God. Sometimes man-made peace is no peace at all. In fact, man-made peace is never real peace. It's a false peace, a faux peace. And it is judgment from God. What we see, if you have your hand out here today, we're getting into these seven seal judgments. This title deed is sealed with seven seals. And the Lamb begins to open this title deed. And as He opens this title deed, we see this in Revelation 6-18, through what we have is a tremendous bombardment from God of hardening judgments. Judgments that harden the hearts of men, just like the plagues in Egypt hardened Pharaoh's heart. Hardening judgments ahead of an Armageddon invasion in Revelation 19. In that Armageddon invasion, the Lamb will put His foot on the Mount of Olives and He will claim possession of the earth as His, the kinsman redeemer. And so we can look at these sealed judgments. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is the seven vials. So the seventh seal is the trumpets and the vials as well. We can look at these seven seals as a preemptive strike by God upon the planet earth prior to His invasion. Just like what happened before the ground troops invaded Normandy in World War II, what took place ahead of that to prepare the ground? Aerial bombardment. That's the way military invasion works. God's got an aerial bombardment awaiting, a bombardment of hardening judgments ahead of His land invasion. And His land invasion will involve Messiah and a great army, the church, clothed in white. But the army won't be needed because the Messiah Himself will overthrow Antichrist and the kingdom of the beast. So the first five seals, I want you to remember this, there are seven seals. The first five seals, as we will see, involve judgment from God by means of natural phenomenon or human instrumentality. I believe these first five seals take place during the first half of Daniel's 70th week. In other words, this is prior to the breaking of the covenant with Israel and Antichrist setting himself up as God. As we look at these seals, there are judgments from God instigated by the Lamb, but they involve natural phenomenon. Judgments that occur already. We see judgment by peace and diplomacy, judgment by war, judgment by famine and pestilence, and judgment by death. Well, these things happen all the time. They will be intensified, but it's judgment by natural phenomenon or through human instrumentality. God uses even wicked human beings to accomplish His judgments. Habakkuk the prophet couldn't understand why God would use the wicked kingdom of Babylon to punish His people Israel. Habakkuk answered the question, Israel deserved its punishment and Babylon too would be judged. The sixth seal, I believe, is a transition into the last half of the 70th week. I believe the sixth seal is a nuclear holocaust. And it ushers us into that last half. Somewhere around there is the breaking of the covenant. And then the seventh seal, which is the seven trumpets and the seven vials, we see a change in the nature of the judgment. The judgment shifts from natural phenomenon 
to supernatural phenomenon. That's where we see angels and demons unleashed on the planet. That's where we see things that John described as horrific involving the falling of heavenly bodies and the destruction of the waters and the plants by supernatural means. We see a taste of this with the plagues in Egypt. Okay, God used supernatural things. That last plague was a supernatural judgment. It did not involve natural phenomenon. It was the angel of death. And so I think when we see this shift is when we move from the first half, the first three and a half years, into the last half, which is what Jesus called the Great Tribulation. So as these first seals are open, I want you to remember we're in the first half of the Tribulation. This is after the church has been raptured. This is after the signing of the covenant. This begins with the first seal, the white horse bearing that rider. This is the rise of Antichrist through peace and diplomacy. A signing of a peace treaty with Israel initiates the start of the 70th week. I believe this peace treaty will allow the Jew to do what he has long desired to do, and that is to rebuild his temple atop Mount Moriah and to reinstitute the temple worship. He's unable to do that today because of Muslim claims regarding the Temple Mount. The Muslims claim it's a holy site. They claim that Muhammad visited it in a dream. He never actually went there in his life. They claim that Muhammad visited it in a dream. And today, they have a mosque. Uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is atop the Temple Mount. And the Jew is not allowed to go on top of the Temple Mount and pray. There, there are religious Jews that are arrested for that even today. They pray at the Western Wall, which is the only thing remaining from the Old Temple. Okay? Underneath that Western Wall, there's a whole series of artifacts and things that have been prepared already for a day when that temple will be rebuilt. And I believe it can be built, rebuilt very quickly. And I believe this treaty will allow them to do it. And as a result, there's going to be a lot of Muslim peoples, a lot of Islamic nations that are going to be very angry. So the peace that is covenanted with the white horse, quickly turns to war. Let's look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. So we've had the first seal opened. Now we're at the second seal, picking up where we left off several weeks, weeks ago, actually. This was before I went to Africa. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Notice, when he had opened the second seal. Who is he? The Lamb. It's the Lamb that opens the second seal. It's not man. It's not Antichrist. It's God. And that second seal brings war. So yes, my friends, Jesus Christ is the instigator of war. Does that fit your caricature of Christ? It doesn't fit the caricature of the Christ that many in this country worship today. A Christ that's just our buddy, our homeboy, but not holy. But the Lamb is holy and He will open a seal that will bring forth war. The Bible says that it's the second beast is what spoke to John. This was the uh, calf-like cherubim of chapter 4, verse 7. The second beast said to John, Come and see. 
I find this phrase mentioned several times here in the beginning with each horse, come and see, very interesting. Because I think in this phrase is encapsulated the role of the church during this period of tribulation. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. This sheds a little light. We're going to get into this fifth seal, the martyrs. But it's talking about the martyrs, which I believe are across all ages. I think it's the martyrs of all ages crying out to God for vengeance. It says, White robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season. Rest yet for a little season. That is the role of the church during the tribulation. To rest yet. To stand on the sidelines and watch as God fulfills His promises. To watch as God wakes up Israel and draws them to Himself. To watch as God redeems this fallen planet. Sometimes the best place to be is not to be fighting for the Lord, but to stand and watch as He fights for Himself. That's what Moses, God told the Israelites through Moses to do at the Red Sea. Stand still and watch the salvation of God. What a privileged place we will have alongside on the sidelines in heaven during this period. Praise God that He will redeem us and rapture us out before these terrible judgments fall. But woe unto those, many who claim the name of Christ, that will find themselves left behind, just as you saw in a few scenes from that video earlier this morning. For they will be forced to endure. Many will be saved during this period, but it will not come without the ultimate sacrifice. It will not come without terrible persecution. And will not involve those who have clearly heard the Gospel, but have rejected it. We'll see that more. But come and see the role of the church. And then what we see is a red horse coming forth. This is often spoken of as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. No, not the four horsemen. It's the four horses. And those four horses are agents of God. We see this in a prophecy in Zechariah that I talked about a long time ago. These are agents of God that come bringing the riders. And the riders are His judgment. Human instrumentality, but yet they are guided by angelic or heavenly beings. All things that happen, we think we're in control here in this planet, but all things that happen are governed by God at the top through spiritual agents. Even the wars and the politics that were going on in Daniel's day, it is said, were governed by spirits. The angel that came to minister to Daniel was hindered because he was doing battle with the prince of Persia, a wicked, evil spirit. There's a spiritual side to things regardless of what modern day science, scientists and philosophers would say. There is a spiritual side. And woe unto those who fail to acknowledge these things and think that the natural is all there is. Unto this rider was given a great sword and power was given to him to take the peace brought about by the first seal from the earth. What we're talking about here is some sort of world war. War is judgment from God. General William T. Sherman of Civil War fame he was one in the Union Army that recognized the only way we're going to bring this war to an end is we have to take it ferociously to the enemy. And as they sacked Atlanta and his army marched to the sea, they realized they had to burn the farmhouses and burn the crops and scorch the land to force the South to capitulate. This same Sherman made this comment about war. War is hell. 
I think war is as close to hell on earth as you can get. There is no hell on earth. A lot of people say, my life has been hell. Or I've experienced hell here on earth. No, you haven't. You have not a clue, my friend. But war is as close as we get to hell on earth. I don't think anyone sitting in this room has ever experienced active combat. Some that went before us did. I've heard stories. It's as close to hell on earth as possible. Some have said that God's judgment here on earth is hell. I mean, is war. Hell is God's judgment after earth. God uses war to judge. God judged this nation through a civil war in the middle of the 1800s. As a result, many people came to Christ. There was great revival in both the Union and Confederate camps during that period. Some call that the Third Great Awakening. God judged the nation and out of it brought salvation. Here God is going to use war to judge the world. It says that a sword was given to this rider. In other words, it came from somewhere else. It came from God. God allowed the war for judgment. You know what this highlights? The first seal was peace. And very quickly we see that peace dissipate. What this highlights is that man-made efforts to usher in peace on earth apart from the gospel always, always result in war, concentration camps, suffering, mass graves, etc., etc. You know, when communism arose in Russia after World War I, the cry was for peace and equality and fraternity. It led to war. It led to bloodshed. It led to concentration camps. Hitler proclaimed peace throughout the world by ridding it of certain peoples and bringing civilization and technology. It brought war and judgment. The liberal hails peace through diplomacy. It only brings war. Placating the Muslim brings war. Man never learns. Man-made efforts at peace on earth always fail. And we as the church should be suspicious of these things. We should never cast our support to any type of ecumenical movement to usher in peace apart from the physical and literal return of the Prince of Peace. He's the only one that can bring peace. That doesn't mean we shouldn't seek peace. That doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to dwell peaceably as much as possible with our fellow man. But we understand that true peace is peace with God. And peace with God only comes through Jesus Christ. It only comes through the Gospel. And ultimately on this planet, there will be no utopia without King Jesus on His throne. We are naive and foolish to think otherwise. When it comes to the wicked, we may see peace or what looks like peace in this life, but the Bible says twice in the book of Isaiah that there is no peace to the wicked. Those calling for peace today, many in the churches, who in reality, when in reality their calls for peace are veiled attitudes of anti-Semitism, because many in these so-called churches call for peace in the Middle East because they hate the Jew, so it's not peace at all. But there is no peace for the wicked. Many who call for peace, many that are behind the pulpit today preaching a false gospel are not righteous. They are wicked. 
Those that are claiming that their ideas and values concerning homosexuality, concerning evolution and all of these things that deny God are changing and changing with the times, they don't represent truth and righteousness. I don't care if they do call Jesus their Savior. They are wicked. Amy Grant is wicked. The lead singer for Jars of Clay is wicked. Rob Bell is wicked. Those that claim that Israel has no place in the fulfillment of God's promise, that's wickedness. These people that say God's Word changes with the times and won't take a stand with God's Word but placate the world. That's wicked. And there is no peace for the wicked. All of these things that even genuine Christians are falling prey to will not bring peace that they hope. The appeasement will not bring peace. It brings war. How many times have we seen this throughout history? Did you know that the peace treaty that ended World War I in 1919, the Treaty of Versailles, as we look back on this side of history, we see that more than anything else, the peace treaty of Versailles in 1919 guaranteed World War II 20 years later. So the war to end all wars, they called it World War I. They said it was the war to end all wars and we have peace. It was proclaimed in Versailles, France in 1919. Only brought another world war 20 years later. What a microcosmic picture of man's failure. What about the Middle East peace efforts? Jimmy Carter thought we had peace in the, peace in the Middle East. Clinton thought he had, had been an instrument of peace in the Middle East. Bush the same thing. Now they're claiming it now. It never brings it. It just brings war. Peace treaty of Antichrist won't bring peace. It's temporary. And the Jew is deceived because he, doesn't, he errs not knowing the Scriptures. He errs not knowing Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. And that peace treaty quickly results in war. War, judgment from God. There is no peace to the wicked. There is no peace in this world. The only peace we can have as followers of Christ is in Jesus. And that's why we must proclaim that peace, the Gospel. Not fighting with a sword, but taking a stand and proclaiming the truth with our mouth. And whatever happens, happens. Like Esther the queen said before she went in to King Darius, if I perish, I perish. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Ricky, if you'll read Matthew 24, 6 and 7. Bob, if you'll read 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4. And uh, Tony, if you'll look up uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14. These are a few verses that talk about this type of war and refer to this time period in the tribulation. Matthew chapter 24, 6 and 7. shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. That pronouncement from Jesus in His Olivet Discourse basically summarizes the plagues of Revelation 6. You will hear wars and rumors of war. Nation against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. 
This is only the beginning of sorrows, it says elsewhere. The end is not yet. Even Jesus spoke of these things. We're seeing wars and rumors of war today. How quickly this planet could fall into world war. From the arrangement of the pieces on the chessboard, even today, it could happen like that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4. We, ye, the church, the Christian at Thessalonica that Paul was writing to, ye are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. In fact, God's, Paul says, I don't have any reason to write upon you about these times and seasons. Why? What, what does he tell the church about in chapter 4? The rapture. Raptured out. He's writing to you, ye, the church at Thessalonica. Then in chapter 5, we have that pronoun change. In verse 3, when they shall say peace and safety. Now he's talking about the world, those that are left behind. When they shall say peace and safety. Antichrist has come, there's a peace treaty. We have peace in our day. As Neville Chamberlain once said in the 1930s, he went and had a meeting with Hitler and they signed a treaty. We have peace in our day. Did that peace follow? No. Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia and started taking countries like dominoes. But the peace we have in this day, the world will say, will be followed by sudden destruction. Just like a woman in her birth pangs. Remember the Jewish, uh, the Jewish uh, rabbis talked about this period prior to the coming of Messiah as the birth pangs of Messiah. The earth in travail. This short-lived peace, the first seal, will be followed by sudden, destruct- sudden destruction that cometh upon them. That is, other than the church. That they will not overtake us as a thief because Christ will rapture us out, I believe, those who are truly saved. Jeremiah 6.14 They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people, Simon, saying, Peace, 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 peace. Here Jeremiah is talking about the people of Israel have been placated, slightly healed by promises of peace when there is no peace. That sums up the peace treaty of Antichrist. Slightly healing the Jewish people, but there is no peace. And we'll see that at the midpoint of that week when Antichrist violates that treaty, Israel becomes terribly persecuted in a way they've never seen. Is this war here mentioned with the coming of the red horse? Here's a question to ponder. What is this war? Is this Armageddon? No, obviously not. That doesn't come till Revelation 19. What is this war? Is it possibly what is described in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39? That's a question here today. Who knows what that prophecy in Ezekiel, Gog and Magog, Meshach and Tubal is about? It's about an invasion of Israel that will take place in the latter days 
the latter years. Now, I'm not going to read those chapters, but that would be something interesting for you to study or meditate upon this week as you study God's Word in your daily readings. But in Ezekiel 38 and 39, what we have described is an invasion of Israel in the latter years after the Jewish people are regathered into their land. And that land is described as a land brought back from the sword. Is Israel regathered in its land today? Is Israel been regathered into its land? Yes. 1948. The modern nation or state of Israel was proclaimed. Has that land, as they dwell in it today, been brought back from the sword? Yes. They had to fight in 1948. The Six-Day War in 1967. The Yom Kippur War in 1974. Brought back by the sword. Jewish people are moving to Israel daily. Why do you think there are these conflicts over building Jewish settlements? They have to build them to house the Jewish people. If they can show themselves to be Jewish through their mother's lineage, they can become a citizen of Israel. And Jewish people are flocking back today. This talks about a time when Israel's been regathered. That's why that 1948 regathering is so important in terms of prophecy. We live on this side of it, not prior to it. So we are in that day. It talks about a day when Israel is dwelling safely in the land, a land of unwalled villages where there are no gates and bars. Well, the fact of the matter is Israel is full of villages and, 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 and communities of people living in places they've never lived before. Israel was always a land of walled cities. There's only one walled city in Jerusalem. I mean, in Israel today, it's Jerusalem, the old city. These settlements that are being built, unwalled, in a sense, we can say that Israel is dwelling safely because... They are protected by the Iron Dome. Yes, there are rocket attacks and things, but they are dealing safely when put in comparison to the way they've dwelt throughout history going back to the time of the Romans. But it's a time when Israel is in the land dwelling safely. Is this safe dwelling a result, possibly, of Antichrist's treaty with them? Perhaps that's the dwelling safely. It's a time when there's an invasion. Who are the invaders? The Bible says there in Ezekiel 38 that it is Gog, the land of Magog. That word Gog is used in the Bible to describe the enemies of God's people. We see it used in Revelation 20 when Satan is loosed from the bottomless pit for a short time and he gathers all the nations against the holy city and against the camp of the saints, Gog and Magog. And there's not even a battle in that gathering, fire comes down from heaven. This is not the same thing as Ezekiel 38 and 39. Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Okay, all of these names here are associated with Noah's son Japheth. Okay, they come from the, the, the lineage of Japheth, Noah's son, as recorded in Genesis 11. Noah's son, was, Japheth, was the progenitor of all the European peoples. We could say all of the white peoples, all of the kind of moves into the Caucasus and in, 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 in the old Byzantium and in part of the Central Asia, okay? The Japhetic peoples, obviously American people descend from that line. These are Japhetic peoples, and it says in verse 15 of 38 that they come out of the north parts. 
Okay? There's an invading army of Japhetic peoples that come out of the north parts. That word north parts there in Hebrew refers to extreme north. A remote north. Something very distant from Israel. And they come with a great company. A huge field army. This Gog and Magog is aided by Persia. Persia is Iran. It's aided by Ethiopia. Ethiopia in Bible days is modern day Sudan, which we know to be a Muslim nation that hates Israel. It's aided by Libya. Modern day Libya is pretty much the borders of the kingdom of Libya from ancient times. It's North Africa, Muslim territory. And it's aided by Gomer and Togerma, which is modern day Turkey, and some of those areas to the east and northeast, Muslim territories. And they will bring many people with them. So we see this Gog, Magog, Meshach and Tubal out of the north parts invade Israel with the help of Muslim nations or nations that are Muslim today. Now the traditional conservative interpretation of this, these chapters is that Gog is the prince and Magog is his land. And it says in the Bible, these, this is the wording here, if you want to turn you can, but in Ezekiel chapter 38, it says, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Um, chief prince. This word in the Hebrew, it's written like this, is Rosh. Okay? Now, many, many times in the Bible, this is translated as an adjective, which means chief or primary. But some people have looked at this passage and translate this as a noun. In other words, it's saying Gog, the land of Magog, who is the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And so it is interpreted that Rosh is a reference to Russia. Meshach would be Moscow, which is the capital of Russia, and Tubal would be Tobolsk, which is the historic capital of Siberia. So many have looked at this and said, here we have an invasion of Russia, the chief of these places, Moscow and Tobolsk, and this is what's being referred to here. I believe that's taking liberties with the language that the Scriptures do not allow. I believe this is an adjective, not a noun. I don't believe that word Rosh in Hebrew is referring to Russia. I believe it talks about chief. Okay, We can see this in several different places in the, the Bible. Just for an example, there's a passage in 1 Chronicles that uses this Hebrew word the exact same way. It's in chapter 8 where it's talking about the, some of the sons and, 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 and uh, leaders of the tribe of Benjamin in chapter 28 and says, these were the heads of the fathers by their generations. Chief! Rosh, men, these dwelt in Jerusalem. Okay? The same thing we see in Nehemiah chapter 12. Same thing. Nehemiah chapter 12 verse 7 when it's talking about the, the, the priest and the Levites uh, that went up with Zerubbabel. Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Jedidiah. These were the chief, Rosh, of the prince priests and of their brethren in the days of Jeshua. So in other words, this prophecy in Ezekiel is talking about Gog and Magog who is the head of Meshach and Tubal. Okay? So some 
You, this used to be interpreted very popularly during the Cold War as referring to the USSR and an invasion of Israel by the USSR with the aid of mu Muslim nations. I think it's interesting that Moscow on a map... Okay, if you see Israel right here, this is Jerusalem. Moscow is basically due north of Jerusalem. And it is in the remote or far north parts. Okay? Um, Another interpretation is that Magog is a reference to Central Asia, which was part of the old USSR, but it's not now. All these stands, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, even Afghanistan, this is Central Asia, and Central Asia today is a conglomerate of what type of nations? Muslim nations. What does Islam desire to do with the nation of Israel? Wipe it off the planet. So. Some would say Magog is a reference to Central Asia. Meshach and Tubal are not references to Moscow and Tobolsk, but they're references to Turkey. Turkey and the Caucasus, which are these nations in here, part of northern Iran, part of northern Iraq, Azerbaijan, and some of these other places. What are these areas today? What kind of nation? Muslim nations. Okay, All Muslim areas. So they would say this is less about Russia and more about an invasion or an alliance of Islamic nations. A jihad against Israel involving Muslim countries of Central Asia, Turkey, Persia, Iran, and then you have Sudan down here in Libya, Muslim nations. Okay, So it would be a jihad against Israel. My personal opinion is that we cannot ignore in this passage the reference to the north parts. That word in Hebrew has a connotation of remote or far north. Okay, Meshach and Tubal do relate historically to places in Asia Minor, but that is not extreme north from Israel. All the other Muslim nations mentioned, even Central Asia, is to the east or to the northeast, or to the west or southwest. So none of those Muslim nations are orientated from Israel in terms of the far north. So I do believe that Russia is involved. But I don't think we have to mean, we don't have to uh, come to that conclusion by changing this word and saying it means Russia, and that these others are Moscow and the other city. I do believe this is an invasion of Ru involving Russia as it backs Muslim nations. Who's one of the chief supporters of Iran and, and Syria and the things that these nations do today? Russia. Okay? Turkey and these other nations are not able to field a large army as the one described here in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But Russia is. I think this invasion is a Russian invasion supported by Muslim nations. It tells us later that there will be those who oppose this invasion and they will speak up. It says that Sheba and Dedan will passively object. Sheba and Dedan is Saudi Arabia. Okay? Saudi Arabia has never been very supportive of these radical Muslim nations. In fact, Saudi Arabia aligned with the United States and the Western powers in Desert Storm. Saudi Arabia will object. Oh, it's a Muslim nation, but they're more concerned about the oil wealth and the upsetting of the oil trade. It says that Tarshish will object. In Ezekiel's day, just like that word north parts meant the far north, 
Tarshish was a reference to the far western lands. Lands to the far west. So I think this is a reference to Western Europe and the United States. Okay? So the Western nations will object. Saudi Arabia will object. But just like our opposition today in the face of what's going on in the Ukraine, it's very passive. Just like the opposition of the UK and France when, when um, Hitler invaded Poland, it was words only. Oh yes, we're on record objecting, but we stand by and let it happen. So there's an invasion that there will be those who object, even Israel's allies, but they'll do nothing to stop it. What are the reasons for this invasion? These chapters say that it's to wipe Israel off the face of the earth and to seize plunder and capture a great spoil. These objectives are common Quranic objectives. You know, they were, they were a common theme in Muhammad's day. It's a common battle cry for Muslims to wipe Israel off the face of the earth and to take a spoil from her. What's the divine purpose of this invasion? It says in verse 16 of chapter 38 that the heathen nations might know God. That heathen nations, maybe nations that haven't heard the Gospel clearly, might know the true God. So it says in these chapters that God's going to draw out this invasion army and they will enter into Israel. And when they enter into Israel, they will turn upon one another and the Lord will rain down fire, hail, and brimstone and God will overthrow this invading army supernaturally. We have an example of this in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 when Israel is facing invasion by Moab and Ammon and Edom, and King Jehoshaphat is fearful, and God tells Jehoshaphat that this invasion is coming, but you and your people stand still and watch. I'm going to fight for you. And as they stood still and watched, when these nations went to enter into Israel, they turned upon each other and killed each other. They got in a fight and an argument and killed each other. And it was Israel that ended up taking the great spoil. Same thing happened in the book of Judges chapter 7 with the Midianites. Gideon and his army of 300 was set to face a huge Midian army. They broke the clay pots and blew the trumpets and what did the Midians do? They turned on each other. They fought the battle against themselves. The thing, same, a similar thing happened with King Asa and the Ethiopian army of a million people that tried to invade the land of Judah in 2 Chronicles 14. God is accustomed to defending Israel by supernatural means and telling her to stand still. That's what happens during this invasion. Similar things happened in the Six-Day War of 1967, the Yom Kippur War of 1974. Some of the stories I've been told cannot be explained other than God's acting on behalf of His chosen people. There was a tank battle that took place on the Golan Heights when Syria invaded Israel on the holy day of Yom Kippur when there was a Sabbath throughout the land and there was a very minimal bareback force on alert. An army of 30 Israeli tanks was met by an onslaught of 300 Syrian tanks there on the Golan Heights. The Syrians were defeated and the invasion was turned back. And even to this day, men that were involved in that battle cannot explain how that took place. That's just a sign of how God's going to deliver Israel during this invasion. 
It says in these chapters in Ezekiel that God will overthrow this great army. Israel will then burn the weapons. They'll, they'll be able to use the weapons for fuel for seven years. And it'll take them seven months to bury the dead. They'll bury them in a place that they will name the Valley of Hammon Gog. And many people will be given jobs just to go around and bury the dead. So the unemployment will decrease and it will take seven months to bury the dead. And then it says Israel will know that the Lord is God. I think this invasion is not a time when necessarily Israel will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. But as a result of this invasion that God overthrows, a very secular nation that is Israel today will know that the Lord is God. And so you'll see a secular nation turn back to the God of Israel and then through more judgments, the time of Jacob's trouble, a religious nation seeking the God of Israel will then recognize that Yeshua is the God of Israel. This event is not the Gog and Magog of Revelation 20. Gog is, a, is nomenclature for the enemy of God's people. And guess what? Islam is the enemy of God's people. I don't care what some ecumenical pastor has to say. I don't care what the Pope has to say. Islam, as defined by Muhammad, as declared in the Quran, as declared in the Hadith, is an enemy of the Jew and an enemy of the Christian. Gog. Start referring to the Muslims as Gog because that's what they are. This is not Antichrist and Armageddon here in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I believe it's something different because there's no mention of Antichrist. There's no mention of the coming of Christ in the overthrow of this battle. So I believe it's a different battle. And I believe it's an invasion and a victory for Israel that will pave the way for Antichrist military rule and His demand that the world actually worship Him as God. Think about it. If this is Muslim jihad backed by Russia, and these Muslim armies are overthrown by God, you've already got the church raptured, Islam defeated in the world, opposition to worshiping a man as God will be greatly reduced. Because the Muslims crying worship for Allah... And the Christians crying worship for God and Him only will be gone. The Muslims that remain will have no army to mount a protest. So people try to understand where does Islam and its growing power fit into the end times. I believe it fits in with these chapters in Ezekiel. There will be an invasion of Israel involving Russia and, and Muslim nations. And this invasion army will be overthrown. Israel will be preserved supernaturally she will begin to wake up. Is this after the 70-week treaty of Antichrist and therefore a result of the treaty? Is it this treaty where Israel is given permission to rebuild their temple that affects this invasion? Because the Muslims are angry. Russia is angry. Tarshish, the western nations, do object. That would involve the kingdom of the beast objecting. They don't get in to prevent it. God overthrows it. So is this invasion of Israel the war spoken of with the, un, with the opening of the second seal? That's a question to be asked. Or is this invasion something that takes place prior to the signing of the 70th week treaty? 
Is this supernatural preservation of Israel beheld by all the world something that causes Antichrist to want to sign a peace treaty with Israel? I don't think we can know that. I don't think we can know for sure whether this latter days invasion of Israel is prior to the rapture of the church or after the rapture of the church. Whether it is prior to Antichrist's peace treaty or is it the second seal after the signing of the peace treaty. Either way, this invasion of Israel serves to wake her up. To start to wake her up. A secular nation reinstitutes the temple worship. Then we see in Revelation chapter 7 that God calls out a remnant of 144,000. Not just a remnant of those that fear God, but a remnant of those who are sealed and go forth preaching to who? The heathen nations that Jesus is the Christ. And then what do we see is the fruit of that preaching in chapter 7. Heathen nations come to Christ in droves. Gentile converts. The Bible says in Ezekiel that one of the results of this invasion and this overthrow will be that the heathen nations turn to God. In Revelation 7, we see the sealing of remnant preachers from Israel that go out preaching. And as a result, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are converted. So I think these are somehow connected. Definitely connected to the end times because that language is used. Something like this could happen very quickly today. It could happen very quickly. Israel could be invaded. There could be a supernatural victory. All of a sudden, the European powers... The United States want to be on the side of Israel. There's a peace treaty signed. Or there could be a peace treaty signed and then Israel is invaded. Just like what happened after the 1948 Declaration of Nationhood, what happened after that? Muslim nations lined up to invade. So I'm not sure exactly where this invasion fits in. It could be the war spoken of in the second seal. Let's compare here a couple of verses in Ezekiel 38. Verse 16, And thou shalt come up against my people Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee. And in verse 23, Thus I will magnify myself, God says, and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now turn to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. This is after John sees the vision of the 144,000 Jews sealed to go forth and preach the gospel. And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. There's a connection. There's a connection. We'll get into this. You have these preachers, these Jewish preachers in Revelation chapter 7. Their ministry is very different than most preachers today. Their fruit is not platforms and buildings and programs. Their fruit is converts from all nations. Oh, that that would be our fruit today. We'll talk more about that later. Alright, regardless of where, what exactly this war involves, there will be war. Whether it's the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war, we cannot be sure. That may happen prior to the rapture. It will happen in the last days. 
but it will happen. Regardless, the lesson for us is man-made peace leads to war. God's peace is peace on earth. And that comes through Messiah. Look at verses 5 and 6. And when He had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Here we have the Lamb, He, opening the third seal. The first seal brought forth Antichrist. Peace and diplomacy. Judgment from God. The second seal brought forth war. The red horse, the rider with the great sword. Judgment from God. Now we have a black horse with a pair of balances in his hand. The third beast was the man-faced cherubim. Called to John, come and see. Come and watch. Rest and watch what I'm going to do. Black in the Bible is a symbol of suffering and famine. I'm not talking about black skin. I'm not making a reference to a racist uh, point of view. So don't even go there. None of you would, I know. I'm just going to be on record saying that. Black is a symbol of suffering and famine. Look at the book of I mean, look at Jeremiah real quick. Jeremiah chapter 14, talking about the color black. The black race is not black anyway. Nobody on this earth has black skin. Okay? No one does. It's brown. So this is, don't, this is not a reference to that. But black, as described here, is a reference to suffering and famine. Jeremiah 14, 1 and 2. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth. A dearth is a famine. Judah mourneth, and the gates thereof languish. They are black unto the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem is gone up. And then look at Lamentations, right after Jeremiah. This is after the fall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah weeps and mourns, wrote the book of Lamentations. That book that talks about the Lord's mercies being new every morning. Chapter 3 is a great chapter. Jeremiah describes the people of Israel after this invasion. Verse 10 of chapter 5. Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. I think this black horse and its color is, a, is an indicator of great dearth or famine that will follow war. What often follows in a war-torn land when the war is over and the peace treaty is signed? Ask the Germans after the Treaty of Versailles. Famine and dearth. But I don't think we're talking about just famine here. Some people interpret this seal as just famine. I think it's more than that. I think it involves economic collapse. I think it involves class warfare and civil unrest. What does this rider have in his hands? A balance. A scales. What is the scales a symbol of? Justice. You know in our courtrooms you see Lady Liberty holding the balance, the scales. What's around her eyes? Blindfold. Because justice should not be a, a respecter of persons. It should be fair. It should be blind. Balances are a sign of justice. Justice is to be fair, equal, and blind, but not here. This isn't blind justice in this judgment. There are two things spoken 
concerning this black horse and his rider. One, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. The penny is the Roman denarius. In fact, the Greek word is denarion in the Greek New Testament. A Roman denarius in John's day was about was equal to approximately a day's wage. Okay? So, at this time, the cost of food will be a day's wage for an average worker. We're talking not just famine, we're talking massive inflation. We see that today. I went to the grocery store yesterday. It's very hard to find a gallon of milk less than $4 anymore. There was $3.99 at Lowe's. And then a tub of Greek yogurt was like almost 4 bucks. We're seeing it today, but nothing compared to what's coming. Just like it said in that song, the days grew cold, a piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. A measure of wheat for a penny. In other words, what this is saying is you could buy one good meal, wheat, or three cheap meals, barley, for the cost of a day's wage. People won't have money to buy anything else. Only food. So your work in a day will buy you three cheap meals or one good meal. You're going to have to decide what it will be. We won't. If we're born again, we won't be here. But those who remain will have to decide. And then the second thing spoken, see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. There's massive inflation. It affects the wheat and the barley, the staples of the average man, the staple of the poor man and the middle class man. But the staples of the rich aren't hurt. No scarcity of oil and wine, but the only people that can afford that are the rich. So the inflation affects the poor and middle class, but not the rich. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer when this black course comes. It's not just famine. That is why peace efforts put forth by wicked, covetous men with power never work. They ensure the opposite of peace. And they're followed by class warfare and then genocide to protect the power of, those in, of the rich. Civil unrest. Politics of fear. Ask the people of Zimbabwe who thought they were getting peace by the appointment of Robert Mugabe as its president when he was not the one elected in a fair election, but the United States and Britain demanded that it be him to rule the country. Ask the people today who have suffered as a result of his politics of fear. United States, there's wickedness in this world, my friends, and the U.S. government is wickedness. We have blood on our hands, and Zimbabwe is an example of that. And I'll say that right now on Memorial Day weekend. Every decision that this country makes is not good. Many decisions made today are evil. This country was blessed, but now it's under the judgment of God. Those that talk about peace and communism and liberalism, when they have the power, they're not going to give it up and they're not talking about regulations for themselves. They get richer. Our politicians get richer on the backs of the poor and middle class who get poor, poor with each new rule and regulation. We're going to see that intensified during the period of this third seal. Here with the black horse, God is judging 
the wicked poor and the wicked middle class of this world. My friends, we do err if we think the poor and working man is righteous just because he's poor and hardworking. There are many quote-unquote Christian people in this country who identify their righteousness with their church attendance and with the fact that they've worked hard and worked a good job and provided for their family the whole, their whole life. There are many people that think because someone is poor, they are righteous. And yes, God does have sympathy for the poor. And yes, God does remember when those who have persecute those who have not. But just because you're poor and hardworking doesn't make you righteous. And the wicked, poor, and hardworking middle class of this world will be judged by God in this third seal with massive inflation. The rich may escape for a time. The oil and the wine is not heard and they'll still be able to eat, but God judges them too. If you turn over to verses 14 and 15, in that same chapter, the fifth seal, the rich can't escape that judgment, says the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich man, the chief captains and the mighty men, and every free man had to hide themselves in the caves of the rock. So God judges the rich too. But make no mistake, just because a man is poor and hardworking doesn't make him righteous. All men deserve the judgment of God. And only Jesus Christ, only by Him can we escape that judgment. I find it interesting that in Hosea chapter 2, verse 8, the Bible says that grain, oil, and wine are key products of Israel. So obviously, Antichrist will want to protect Israel's resources during this time because of his treaty with them. That may be a reason why the oil and the wine are not hurt. I believe even with this third seal, we are still in the first half of the tribulation, and I'll talk more about that later. But this third judgment, this black horse, is not just famine, it's economic collapse. Every economy in this world today is a house of cards waiting to fall. Even our laissez-faire, democratic economy. You know, paper money is not money. It has no value. Much of the money that's printed today is not backed by anything. Ask the people of Zimbabwe, when their economy crashed as a result of the, the um, wicked regime of Robert Mugabe, they had to start printing money of much higher uh, numeric value than they had been accustomed to. It got to the point where the government of Zimbabwe was printing million, billion, and trillion dollar bills. And people would have to take a wheelbarrow full of trillion dollar bills to buy a loaf of bread. Because the, the, the numeric value of the money went up, the real value of the money went down. Look today. Those of you that grew up before I did, could you imagine growing up in the 50s and 60s that the day would come when you'd be spending $4 for a gallon of milk? What was it back in the 50s? That's inflation. Okay? It's coming to the day. Fortunately, we're not at a, at a place where a day's wage will only buy us one good meal or three good meals. There are people in the world today that experience that all the time. There are people in the world, in Nepal, even in Nepal, for example, where a day's wage will barely buy them three meals. We in America aren't accustomed to those things. But it's coming. And if your faith is in your portfolio, if your faith is in your bank accounts, if your faith is in the Republican Party or in Wall Street, you're going to be sorely dismayed because there is no protection from inflation that comes by the hand of God. There is no protection for economic collapse that comes as judgment 
against wicked men. I'm going to end there today. So we've gotten through the first six verses. Next week I'll talk about the fourth seal. The fourth, the fourth horse. The pale horse. And the one that rides him is actually named. It's the only one of the four riders that is named. And power is given to this rider. Hell follows him. And then the last phrase in verse 8. I want you to think about this this week. It says, Power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth. I believe this is a summary statement. I don't believe the last half of verse 8 is referring to the fourth horse only. I believe it's a summary statement that encapsulates all four of these judgments. The diplomacy and peace of Antichrist, the war that follows, the economic collapse, and the sudden and unexpected death that follows will envelop a quarter of the world's population. That's extreme. That's tribulation that this world has never seen. That's why these things cannot be talking about the events in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 at the hands of the Romans like some teach. This is talking about a future period of tribulation that serves to judge the wicked and to wake up Israel. Not to punish the church. The sins of the church were already punished at Calvary. The trials of this present world strengthen us for the world to come. And by God's grace, those that are saved will be raptured out. And the only perspective from which we will see these things is on the sidelines, not by experiencing them. Praise God that we live on this side and we can hear these truths and be edified thereby. Okay, that's it.